You are listening to Case in Point, a podcast from the team at Case, where we dive deep into some of the more challenging issues facing K-12 education. Find more episodes of Case in Point and our other podcasts online at www.co-case.org forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Case members, we are excited to welcome Brooke Mabry from NWEA today for our episode of Case in Point. And uh, NWEA has been a longtime sponsor with Case, and many of our attendees uh, had a chance to see Brooke at our summer convention, the 52nd annual convention up in Breckenridge, just about a month ago. So welcome back, Brooke. Thanks for being here with us today on Case in Point. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. With your work with leaders across the country, what are the issues that seem to be top of mind? You know, that's a really great question. I think there are three things that seem to be coming up over and over in our conversations and collaborations with leaders across the country. Of course, um, we've heard a lot about attending to students and educators' social and emotional learning needs. We've heard um, a lot about attending and addressing unfinished learning. And then, of course, what follows that is what are the best data sources and processes to use for making decisions in the wake of the pandemic? Well, um, I guess that's a lot (laughs) right there um, to be thinking of, um, of the things that you're hearing and conversations that you're in. Let's start with social emotional learning. And as I just said in the introduction, it was an extremely popular session for our members this summer at the convention. Um, What specifically are leaders surfacing about social-emotional learning? So, you know, I think one of the things that's really crystal clear is that social-emotional learning has been elevated. Uh, It's getting more attention, I think, because of the implications of the pandemic and the physical distancing that so many of us experienced early on in the pandemic. And I think it's always been important, uh, but now it's being elevated to academic learning status in the conversation. And we think that's a good thing. Uh, Quite frankly, um, we think, you know, there have been all these questions, even just recently, I was asked to uh, reply to um, an essay uh, response for Fordham Institute about how do we attend to students' social emotional learning needs without the expensing academics. And uh, we really see that as a false question. It's a false dichotomy. It's both and. learning is inherently social and emotional. When we learn, we engage in sense-making and discovery in the context of relationships. We know that academics are how we measure growth and content knowledge, but we know it's the integration of those social and emotional concepts that really lays the foundation for a positive learning experience. We can't uncouple social and emotional learning from academics because they're so deeply intertwined. So when we're thinking about those pieces, one of the things that um, leaders are asking is, how do I make time for that? Um, Academics are so important. Um, We've really been talking about the need to double down on those. Um, If you look at CASEL's framework, the uh, collaborative for social emotional learning, they have a framework that starts with uh, the first is organization, which is establishing 
a social emotional learning team and creating a plan. Um, focus two is strengthening the adult social emotional competencies. And then focus three is promoting it for students. But what I've seen um, in my conversations with leaders is that we often skip step two. We go right from creating our plan to working with students. And there's research out there that shows us that when we do that, we actually have a negative impact on students. And so we really need to make sure that we're working with our adults first, getting our culture of collaboration and our culture of well-being in place um, so that we can focus on that in the context of the work. Hey, Brooke, so when, when I hear that, what comes to mind well, it's uh, we got to spend all this time doing uh, trust falls and ropes courses and and all of those kind of things to to build up that. But I, I know that's not what you're talking about. So having heard you enough, um, how, how do we answer that back that this is different from from those kind of conversations when we're talking about um, getting the adults ready um, the, before we start working with the students? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and I, I like that you phrased it that way, because I think that there are a number of leaders that I've worked with, many principals and superintendents, in fact, that that uh, were my leaders in my previous experience in uh, district and schools, that they think that if we can just get our staff to like each other, that uh, will be more effective. And I want to be really clear, this is not about a culture of like. Uh, you know, liking each other tends to be a byproduct of this. So this is not about ropes courses. This is not about those touchy-feely kinds of things. This is about articulating a shared vision where we're really beginning with the end in mind to think about what is it um, that we want um, to accomplish? What do we want to embody in our professional environment? How do we want to be? And how do we want to be with each other? And thinking about those uh, characteristics really helps us start to um, co-create that kind of culture. And so as we start thinking through that work, there's a lot of research that says we have to work on psychological safety first. And so uh, it's that's really one of the things that resonated with uh, the people who attended my session at the um, summer case conference is really how do I attend to that? So I think there are some really great practical strategies out there for attending to those pieces. But then how do we elevate the voices of, um, of our colleagues, really thinking about um, how they give uh, feedback and input into the process? And how do we promote their agency to really share our leadership with them and give them permission to act within and get better uh, in relation to the culture that we're trying to create? And I think essentially at the end of the day, our role as leaders is to create effective conditions. How do we attend to adult motivation and empowerment? Um, our adult learners are no different than our student learners. We have to explore and create those conditions that are necessary for achieving that professional environment that we're collaborative, collaboratively seeking. And we really have to, I think, focus on the conditions that promote four mindsets. Uh, we want the mindset of belonging. When our staff feel they belong to the community, their motivation and perseverance and risk-taking are increased. So, um, so is the, the retention. Uh, when, when staff have a strong sense of belonging, we have fewer people who are leaving the profession. 
if we think about uh, the second mindset, we're looking at efficacy. We know John Hattie's work tells us that collective efficacy is one of the um, strongest positive impacts we can have on education. And so how are we creating collaborative professional environments that allow for collective efficacy to unfold? And then how do we promote a growth mindset and um, a mindset of, of meaning? meaning that I, um, I get a sense of meaning and the tasks that I engage in are meaningful to me um, when I'm here um, in this profession. So really creating um, that environment helps everyone to be able to authentically say, I belong in this community, I can succeed at my work, my ability and my competence grow with my effort and this work has value for me. And I think that when we attend to those that happens inside the work. It doesn't happen on a ropes course or on a trust fall. We're really thinking about engaging in, in the work of getting better together while we're doing the educational work of serving students. Well, I just, I really appreciate um, that, that um, explanation and that straightforwardness because now I, I'm definitely um, able to sit and have that conversation about it's not an add-on it's how we do the work right to begin with um, and where we could be focusing so um, you mentioned academics quite a bit um, while we've been talking SEL so um, how is that connected to leaders second topic of interest that you mentioned earlier addressing students unfinished learning yeah there's been so much talk of unfinished learning um, what really many in my including my organization, originally termed COVID learning loss, um, which really sparked talks of COVID recovery. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that are out there that are concerned with deficit language, and I would say rightly so. So we want to make sure in our organization that we're responding. And so we are really moving away from saying things like learning loss and COVID slide to focusing on unfinished learning. And we don't want to say lost learning, uh, I think, quite frankly, because that implies we're never going to find it or we're out there searching for it. And I think that what we're really um, needing to do in this moment to address unfinished learning is that we really have to identify the priority standards and the essential learning at each grade level. And we've got to use our data to determine where, where our students are relative to those priorities. And when we do that, then we can formulate a plan for addressing those needs, the unfinished learning that students may have or the advanced learning needs. Not all of our students are going to come in um, having experienced uh, the kinds of, of slides in their, in their learning that we have seen, you know, across the nation. It, we may have some students who come in ready for grade level or beyond. And then how do we set up um, a system so that we can monitor the progress of students along those trajectories with our formative data? And so I know that um, I'm a former director of teaching and learning, and with the schools and teachers that I served, I often found that teachers were really strong and really had a depth of understanding around their grade level standards, but they didn't often have um, the coherence that was needed, understanding the, the grade level standards that come before or after to really be able to come up with clear and strong plans that help to bridge learning um, in, in the context of grade level uh, priorities. And so I think that that's the work that we have to do, that um, as leaders, we have to promote that our instructional teams are helping our teachers understand that coherence and are providing them resources and time to do the work to think about how do I make that bridge um, 
within the context of what I'm teaching, because we know that traditional remediation practices don't work. Uh, TNTP's The Opportunity Myth shows us that um, as well-intentioned as it is to focus exclusively on prerequisite skills for students who are below grade level, that actually increases the opportunity gap rather than closes it. So what we're really thinking about is how do I provide that just-in-time, just-right scaffolded instructional support that bridges uh, that unfinished learning to what I'm trying to teach right now so that we don't spend a lot of time remediating up front. Well, as, uh, as the um, gray-haired person on the, on the podcast here, um, I, I appreciate the, the references back to um, priority learnings or power standards, essential learnings, essential skills. I mean, we've been talking about this for um, 20 years. And um, and so how does that come to be? How, how do we know that this work has been there for quite a long time? Um, we've recognized that this is where we need to focus our first instruction. And yet we are so captivated to jump to um, this intervention, you know, only approach or intervention heavy approach and um, really go backwards to prerequisite skills instead of those essential skills of that target. Why do we find ourselves falling into that? Um, because I know that everyone is working hard. They all have the right um, beliefs and they care about the kids and no one's trying to do any harm. Um, yet we fall into this trap of something that just feels like it should be right, but the research has been telling us the opposite for a long time. How does that happen, Brooke? I think it's twofold, Brett. I think it seems logical, right? And so when you think about it, it seems like that's what would work. I have to, if we think about learning being sequential, if a student misses something in a sequence, I have to go back and fill the gap, right? So that they can, so then I can provide exposure here. But the problem is there's not enough time for that. We don't have time to, uh, we're, we're already at at a, at a loss for time in our instructional day uh, just to teach the content that is at our grade level. So what we end up doing is we compound the loss uh, by looking backwards and focusing exclusively there. I think that's one thing. But I think the second thing is that um, our, I'm, I'm not bagging on any teacher prep program, but our teacher prep programs in general, I don't think really prepare us as educators to know how to um, to really leverage our standards and prerequisite skills to think about how do I how do I use that as a scaffold? I'm not sure. I know in my own um, teacher prep program that was never something that um, that I studied. It was something that I learned in practice. And I think that that's that's the thing is that our we see in not just the educational sector there's a lag between uh, releasing research and action catching up with it. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, um, we are experiencing that action lag right now. We've had data for decades that tells us that uh, remediation doesn't work, yet we're still uh, not making the shift in our practice. And so I think it's a priority that we have to create an accountable structure, if you will. Um, I think the things that get monitored and measured are the things that get done. So as leaders, how are we creating an accountable structure such that our teachers receive the professional learning that they need to learn how to um, understand the coherence of standards and use those 
to create scaffolded instruction? Are we providing enough support for teachers to understand what we want them to do? And then once they do have that understanding and the proficiency with that skill, then are we setting up these monitoring systems where we are checking in on those expectations and providing feedback that uh, allows the educator to grow in their capacity in that area? And so I think that's that's likely the thing that um, will change uh, the culture of how we uh, we focus on what what many are calling accelerated learning. Um, I think that term is is one that is used a number of different ways. So I think we have to be careful to think about acceleration. We're not trying to go faster through the content. The whole idea of acceleration is we're trying to accelerate the rate at which students grow, um, not the rate at which we teach something. So really being intentional about how we're creating our scope and sequence and the ways that we are helping our educators learn how to scaffold just in time, just right instruction so that students can access those rigorous grade level standards. Well, you've, you've referred to the need for high quality data. And it certainly makes sense that, you know, that our leaders are surfacing questions about the best sources of data and the most effective processes for decision-making with that data. So what are you hearing for recommendations on these fronts? I will always be a proponent of the data closest to the students and teachers is the data that matters the most. And I think now more than ever, uh, there's a really a need for good formative practice. Um, teachers really need to, to be able to have data, access to data that helps them understand where students are relative to what they're trying to teach. I know that um, there are a number of um, interim assessments out there that we might use in order to find out where students are ready to learn. But I think more than anything, it's how educators leverage the, the, the data that they have, whatever that may be. Um, so ensuring that there's strong assessment literacy in a district and in a school and in classrooms is really critical. Do teachers know what data they have available to them? And are they, um, are they leveraging it in a way that allows them to know um, what they're going to do? I think we have, in this country, we have a a problem of practice around admiring data. We spend a lot of time in data meetings where we're looking at data. My question is, how much time do we spend acting on the data that we're analyzing? If we don't have a strong protocol that helps us articulate what we're gonna do differently as a result of having looked at that data, then there's no point to even look at the data. So I think that using a process that looks at predictions, what do I think the data is gonna say about my students can really help us surface some of the assumptions and biases that, that we may have walking into the data. But then a, uh, the second step is you know, really exploring the data, avoiding saying why, but really digging in and just letting the data do the talking. And then we start doing some explanation. After we've looked at that data, we can start to root cause analyze, why might those things be occurring? And I like to do a, a process there, Brett, where we're looking at, we put up on sticky notes, all the reasons. But before we move to that last step, which is the action plan, we go ahead and think about all the things that we've listed. What are the ways that we can influence that? Because there are really five different causal categories that we could lean on. We may think, may say things, um, root cause analysis around students, their knowledge, skills, dispositions. Um, we could look at um, infrastructure, curriculum, but there's also 
teaching practices and, and educators themselves. And so I've facilitated hundreds of data conversations um, at the PLC and school and district level in the last six years with NWEA. And we're really good at educators as naming those external factors that relate to students, to uh, infrastructure, to processes, but we're not always good at looking at the things that we um, directly control, which is the teaching and our mindset skills and dispositions as well. And so one thing that I like to do is to make sure that we're getting an action plan that we can really enact is to say, how will we influence all those things, even if it's a factor outside of, of the teacher um, or the instruction. So let's say that one of the things that a teacher raises is that it's student attendance is a barrier. It's one of the things that's contributing to our data being how it is. Then I say, how will we influence that? What, what will we do? What can we do within our power to influence student um, attendance? Or if they say it's students' work habits and organizational skills are preventing us from moving forward, how will we influence that? Let's set up um, explicit instructional routines around teaching organization and helping them manage their work habits. And so we really use those for that fourth step of what's my action plan by having us articulate those influences. And when we start moving into that way, it, the data that we collect, formative or formal assessment data, um, is going to become a good data source because we're doing something with it. Um, Brooks, so you just talked about um, so many ways that, you know, um, how do we want our teachers to embody, you know, our professional environment? We, you know, those you said, um, you know, that importance of those different mindsets that they bring, um, if the teacher brings that growth mindset in um, for her or himself as well as their students. Um, I loved earlier the talking about the, the idea behind retention even tied to this and how much our leaders' jobs get easier if we just could have some better teacher retention um, makes things. But what I want to just uh, jump to real quick, a little different, what's on my mind is thinking about the case audience. So uh, we're the principals, um, they're instructional assistant superintendents and they're superintendents in charge of that whole system. When we dig into those other issues of those teaching practices and um, and the mindsets and dispositions of educators themselves, what can leaders do um, to to make that a priority, to strengthen that? I mean, it's easy. I, I, I think a leader knows, well, we can, we can walk through um, our scope and sequence. Um, we, you know, we can tackle the curriculum one. We've been able to tackle the curriculum one for a long time. But on that teaching practices one, uh, we've spent so much time over the years focused on the formal evaluation process, but this is much bigger than that. Um, so I think there's some easy low hanging fruit that our leaders know to go grab, um, like those curriculum alignment or policies to get students there on time. Those are all the, it seems like the tough ones are those mindsets and dispositions of educators themselves. And what, what message do you have for our leaders about how they actually can impact that? I think it's, it's twofold, really. It's modeling. I think the power of modeling is still so crucial, especially um, from a leadership perspective. If we're expecting our principals and uh, instructional leaders in schools to facilitate this work with teachers, then we as executive leaders really have to facilitate that and model for our, 
our school leadership. So really tackling some of the same issues in terms of what's our um, professional culture, what do we want it to look like when we come together, and how can we embody those mindsets. But I think if you look at if you look at Edgar Sheen's definition of organizational culture in um, in the fifth edition of, of his book called Organizational Leadership, what he says is that uh, culture is perceptions, it is thoughts, it's feelings, um, it's beliefs, and it's also actions. If that is the case, then we really have to surface people's perceptions. Um, we have to be you know, looking at shaping their their perceptions, their attitudes, their mindsets, and their habits, we have to make that explicit. And I think too many times our culture is transmitted in an unwritten, um, unarticulated fashion. I I like to play this game sometimes with with groups of of people when I'm doing this work about setting setting the frame for what the what you want the culture of collaboration to look like. And I always put up this never have I ever slide. And so it's this opportunity to play this game about never have I ever. And I list all of these ineffective, um, poor cultural things that happen during collaboration, like people distracting themselves with paperwork, um, people taking phone calls or um, interrupting or you know, coming to the meeting without a clear agenda or walking away, not having made a decision. And so when I look at all those pieces, culture really starts with um, both the written and unwritten rules of the way that we do business around here, right? And so as leaders, it's really important that we are explicitly uh, stating what we want uh, the culture to be. I know that a lot of teams engage in writing their belief statements and their values and their vision statements. Uh, that's all great work. But if we don't have some way day to day to enact those, to check in on those, I think about um, this idea of creating a culture of collaboration and a culture of data use um, that gets better the same way any kind of learning does with assessment and feedback. So what are we doing as leaders to assess? I know we have those big climate surveys. I know we have the culture surveys, but what are we doing to collect formative data along the way, those little pulse checks to see how it's going? I always tell people that um, if we want things to change, it has to start with us. And so how are we as leaders really leaning in to help our principals understand the tone and tenor that we're trying to set with this culture? And then how can we model that in um, our interactions with our board of education and with our um, executive leadership teams. I loved your phrase earlier, um, going from admiring the data, which is something that we're really good at, to you know acting on that data, and and then the process that you described, um, that data dialogue process of of the taking the time to actually make those predictions and surface in each of those. Um, those thoughts that we have um, that, you know, then checking them with the real data um, long before we even start talking about cause. Um, and so it certainly seems to be a real tangible way that leaders can um, walk people through a process where the data is not just admired. Um, I, I love that. It is. It becomes a beautiful model because we facilitate that district um, data conversation, then we equip our principals to go back and facilitate their school um, data conversations. And so um, 
Brooke, you just had a, a, a packed session with our members in, in Breckenridge a few weeks ago. Um, I'm going to do this kind of as in a two-part thing. So I ask you a little bit about um, what you heard from, from school administrators that, that they really liked about that session. And then um, very excited um, to have you back with a small audience of just superintendents here um, at the end of September. And um, what are some of those messages from from their, their school leaders that you're going to be able to transfer over to those superintendents? I think one of the things that resonated most uh, was just that idea of talking about where do we dedicate our time? And uh, so many times we we think we can't make the time to focus on our culture of collaboration and, and strengthen our well-being practices because we've got to spend time on the academics and really dive into those pieces. But I think what really resonated with principals was the fact that um, spending time on these practices has a direct positive correlation to academic achievement and social adjustment for our students. And so when we look at those pieces, um, we know that that we really need both and. And so I think that really energized uh, school leaders and some of the instructional executives who were there to go back um, to their schools and districts and think about what are the structures we have in place to um, make the space for this kind of work to happen. In fact, we've had a number of schools and districts reach out uh, since that case summer uh, session to schedule an opportunity for us to come on site and facilitate some of this work with their teams. So I think that that's one thing that really resonated. I think the other is that attending to well-being can be um, can be done in the work. It doesn't have to be some touchy-feely activity. And so I I shared a, a toolkit um, with attendees of the of the conference session that helped them understand what are some of the practices that they could put in place that would attend to well-being, but would also further the work of the school. And so I um, I think that that's something that really resonated. Well, thank you so much. I know one of the things that I'm going to take from this conversation as well as our um, planning conversations um, with it is that uh, so often we take for granted that those conditions for good social emotional learning are already in place. And so we just want to jump to the part for the kids. Um, and, you know, and this is a really um, terrific reminder backed in research um, that lets us know that uh, we need to check our own data, um, gather our own information, and uh, make sure that we're just not assuming uh, that the correct conditions for our adult motivations are in place um, prior. So I just I greatly appreciate you bringing this um, to the forefront when it would be so easy for everyone to concentrate on um, summer school and after school programs and um, lost opportunities of learning. And um, we've got to make sure that those um, fundamentals are in place with our adults first. Um, it's such a timely and important topic that you're sharing. Thank you for the opportunity, Brett. I look forward to being with you all in late September. Right. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, we always look forward to our partnership with NWEA here at CASE. Um, your research and insights and, and the expertise um, make for a great partnership. And I know that you get that back from our, um, from our members as well. So thanks so much for being here today, Brooke. Thank you.